Hello, everybody. We are brought to you today by Routine. When you sleep, you lose between a pound and a pound and a half of water, mainly from expelling vapors and sweating. What do you do first thing in the morning? Well, most people wake up, don't drink water, and they go straight for the caffeine. They drink coffee. And by doing so, you actually dehydrate yourself even more. So Morning Routine is a product that contains half an organic lemon, one tablespoon of apple cider vinegar, Himalayan sea salt, all six essential electrolytes, and most importantly, no sugar. They come in these little single-serve packets, and they are part of every single morning for me. When I wake up, the first thing I do is grab my shaker bottle, pour one of these little single-serve packets in, shake it up, and drink it. Uh, genuinely, the days I use Morning Routine versus the days I don't, the days I do, I truthfully, truthfully, truthfully feel hydrated. Uh, I feel like my brain is just working in a way that it doesn't on days that I don't start my day off with one of these. Routine, trusted ingredients, made convenient. If you go to yourroutine.com and use code ShaneWhite30 at checkout, you'll get 30% off your first order. Again, this is just a daily morning supplement that I take. Um, and a little hack for everyone listening too, I take these first thing in the morning. Sometimes when I feel just dehydrated or maybe if you decide to have an alcoholic beverage, they're also great in my opinion after having a, if you have a drink, um, having one of these afterwards before you go to bed to rehydrate, just any part of your day, um, you can plug one of these in uh, just to rehydrate yourself and get going. And like I said, go to yourroutine.com and use code ShaneWhite30 at checkout for 30% off your first order. Today, we're also brought to you by NeuroRoast. Today's episode is brought to you by NeuroRoast, a company that's dedicated to helping you optimize your brain function and overall well-being. NeuroRoast's flagship product is their premium mushroom coffee, which is made with an organic single-origin coffee and their signature blend of five different functional mushrooms, including cordyceps, lion's mane, reishi, turkey tail, and chaga. Mushroom coffee is a new and exciting way to supercharge your day. Unlike regular coffee, which can cause jitters and crashes, mushroom coffee provides a more balanced and sustained energy boost, allowing you to stay focused and productive throughout the day. And with NeuroRoast ground and instant coffee options, you can enjoy the benefits of mushroom coffee wherever and whenever you need it. And here's some great news for my listeners today. NeuroRoast is offering an exclusive just discount just for you. If you use the code ShaneWhite during checkout at NeuroRoast.com, dot com that's n-e-u-r-o-a-s-t dot com you'll get 30 percent off your order uh, whether you choose ground or instant coffee both will work so again that's shane white at at checkout for 30 percent off your purchase so if you're looking for a natural and delicious way to boost your focus memory and overall cognitive function give neurorose mushroom coffee a try with their commitment to quality and sustainability, you can trust that you're getting the best possible coffee for your brain and your body. Uh, and one last time, use that code Shane White at checkout to get 30%. Um, that is the prompt they gave me. Love the guys at NeuroRoast. Genuinely, folks, uh, from me to you, th their coffee is delicious. It does honestly have a different sort of caffeination way of it. The best way to describe it is it, it doesn't give you the jitters or the crash. Um, I love their stuff. It's the I get the flavored mushroom coffee, ground coffee. Um, to be honest, it's one of my favorite afternoon coffee products. Uh, if I'm going to have a cup of coffee for some reason in the afternoon, whether it's a long, busy day, whatever it may be, um, I love taking their stuff because it really doesn't give you this like jittery, super elevated caffeinated feeling, but you feel like you have energy and you don't have the crash later. So genuinely do love NeuroRoast. Again, their website is N-E-U-R-O-A-S-T.com and the code is Shane White. All right, everybody. Thanks for listening today. The episode is up after this. All right, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Shane White Show. I am pumped today to have Caitlin Mogentel of Pulp Pantry on the podcast. Caitlin, welcome to the show. How are you? Thanks so much, Shane. Good morning, and uh, you know, doing pretty well. This is this is one of the first things I have on the agenda today, so super excited about that. It's a good way to start the day. Oh, that's great, and hopefully, yeah, fresh. I feel like doing a podcast late in the day would be brutal. <laughs> 
yeah, you're like, oh God, I had, you know, whether it's a good day or a bad day, you're just, you know, you're ready to clock out. Sure. <laughs> well, hopefully, hopefully this podcast is fun. I, I do think there's probably some podcasts that people go on that are super dry and boring. You just want to get the hell off the podcast. So hopefully that's oh not this goodness. one. <laughs> no, I know. And it's, you know, what? it's always fun just to get to know people like you too. And, and, um, I, I, I'm so happy that podcasts are a thing now, you know, that oh, we just too. get to have these little, these little, I mean, I don't know. Before it was like panels, interviews, got to be in person. Here we, we just do it from the comfort of our own home. <laughs> right. Yeah. I, I started this during COVID, funny enough. I just, it was funny. Being That's a finance amazing. guy, it's not very common to want to interact with as many people yeah. as I do. I'm very uh, extroverted for my, my background. And as soon as COVID hit and I was stuck at my house and no longer commuting to the city, and I was like, I should start. I've always wanted to start a podcast. And it was, it was a little bit of luck, but it was also just a lot of fun because I got to interact with people who either A, I used to see in person, but mostly it was people who I probably would have never interacted with otherwise. So it's been really fun for me. I know. And I'm sure for you, it's just like, I mean, you can literally reach out to anyone. I'm sure, yeah. <laughs> I'm sure you'd yeah. be like, yeah, let's do, let's do a podcast. I mean, honestly, it's, it's such a cool thing to just be able to, I mean, especially for you focusing on CPG, to be able to have the finance background and use that to, I mean you kind of understand the industry and, and what questions to ask and whatnot. And so, you know, there's CPG, we're rare breeds for, we're, 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 it's a, it's a, it's a hard industry. So I think it's, it's awesome. Oh, thank you. Yeah, no, I agree. It definitely is cool. And you can, you know, I, I probably tell people way too often, but I'm like, if you have any sort of thing you're interested in, you can start a podcast and yeah. it's, it's, it's fun. It's fun. And it's probably going to introduce you to people that you wouldn't have met otherwise in your industry or the industry you want to learn more about or mm -hmm. build a business in. So I always challenge exactly. people to do it. And it's so easy now from your computer. I mean, just hit record and go and you've, you've got the whole setup. You're, you are golden, you know? Oh, thanks. It took time. I, you know, it's funny though. You say that, but I started <laughs> off with like the shittiest microphone of all time to get started. Oh I yeah. had some of my early episodes is so embarrassing if you go back and look, but they were, they were just recorded with like, Apple headphones on my phone like they were oh, just yeah. I was walking and recorded which I'm sure now is probably hilarious to go back and listen to oh but, yeah yeah you can definitely tell the sound quality difference I'm sure yeah for sure for sure well for Love everyone it. listening Caitlin would you mind people who don't know you and don't know what pulp pantry is would you mind giving everyone just a quick background on you and the brand yeah I um founded pulp pantry actually coming out of um a really on the ground, environmental science background, just kind of saw firsthand how much food was going to waste in the United States and specifically fruits and vegetables. Um, and on the flip side, realizing, oh my goodness, there's, you know, nine in 10 Americans don't get their servings of fruits, vegetables, or fiber. And so how is it that, you know, 40% basically of all food going to waste is fruits and vegetables. And yet we have this kind of gap in nutrition. And so really started Pulp Pantry from, um, for me, it was actually like a, a real you know, mission orientation, I think more so fighting food waste to fight climate change was really my, my call to action. But, um, you know, I was really inspired by the likes of Patagonia. Mm. And of course, who isn't? I think anyone in kind of the sustainability space, we, we use Patagonia, of course, as an example a ton, because I feel like they really set an example for how kind of a consumer brand can really bring ethos into the forefront and talk about really, I think, complex issues when it comes to climate, when it comes to obviously their big thing and a lot of what they focus on conservation or um, even just like fashion waste and, and the kind of exposing the fashion industry um, for for a lot of the environmental issues and disruption it causes. And so, you know, for me, I was like, this is a, it would be a really unique opportunity of course, there's so many ways to tackle food waste, but I think, um, you know, I love the people oriented aspect of the food industry and of building a consumer brand. And I felt like that was really where, you know, we could, it is a consumer issue. Like most, most of food waste is happening in people's homes. So mm -hmm. I got really excited about building a brand that kind of combines all of these different, um, really complex topics, but allows it to be really digestible. And of course, engaging for for people to purchase a product that's made from upcycled produce and so the the long and short of it i guess is you know pulp pantry is a upcycled food brand and um we take and partner with supply suppliers like let's say the cold pressed juice industry who have large amounts of uh, fruit and vegetable byproducts and we turn that into value-added consumer products so um today we have a line of veggie chips that are made from the fiber leftover from cold pressed juice but we also partner with uh, salad packing plants. We partner with basically anyone who's processing 
um, greens and has a large volume of byproduct. And that's what we use to make the veggie chips. So um, we're just getting started. I feel like we're, we're so early in the journey and I've seen such massive growth in the upcycled food industry. It's very, it's super exciting to see. And there's just so many opportunities and untapped potential and, you know, potential product lines that I think really could apply this same ethos and the same process. Um, so I'm just super excited about the space and, and kind of what's to come. That's awesome. Yeah. I mean, what a cool idea. And I would love to go back towards the beginning because <laughs> I feel like with most food brands, the ability to create something in your kitchen and mm -hmm. get an MVP and get people to try it for a lot of different types of products outside of maybe, well, even beverage, I guess you could argue you yeah. could do that in your kitchen. For this type of product, though, I mean, I'm sure you you did some of that, but then going from that to actually getting product from all these locations feels like a huge jump. So what did the beginning days of Bull Pantry look like? Was it like you juicing and seeing there's leftover product and trying to create something with it in your own kitchen? Was that the beginning? Yeah, I mean, the beginning was definitely like the, the kind of to distill it down to the, the aha moment was literally at a friend's house. And, you know, I went to University of Southern California. Um, and so I was at a friend's house and we... It, what's interesting about USC, it's a very, of course, like it's a, it's a, a great university, right? But it is in a, um, a community that is a food desert. So actually there mm. aren't a ton of, now this has changed, but there's weren't a ton of grocery stores around like within a mile radius. That's kind of how uh, we defined a, a food desert. And it was really interesting because that meant that students who had the means would go off campus to purchase, you know, their, their, their groceries for the week and so she went off campus to purchase let's say organic vegetables and was at home juicing a bunch of carrots when I was um over and I just that was the first time I had witnessed because I think so many juice shops you just you don't see what's going on in the back end you just see like the bottles of juice of course at the mm. front and so for me that was the first time I had witnessed how much waste was actually produced in that process and you know when she all my friends knew I was a crazy zero waste hippie so for her it was like you know, she looks at me, and she's like, I don't know what to do with the whole I usually throw it away. I'm so sorry. I don't know, you know, I don't know where to go from here. And so I took it home and yeah, just made a batch of like carrot cake cookies and shared them. I had, I was living in a house with 10 girls. So it was a very, um, it was a very great environment for testing a ton of weird food experiments. I already had like 10 taste testers built in right there. Um, and yeah, started there. I mean, just started with you know, that careful the next day just called up a bunch of juiceries and was like, Hey, what are you guys doing with the, the, the fiber after you're juicing? And all of them was kind of like a confessional. They were like, we, we don't know what to do. No farmers will pick it up. We can't find composting services. So we throw it away. And so it was literally going to the landfill where now we know, you know, there's methane gas produced, which is one of the most potent greenhouse gases from food rotting in landfills. And, um, and food is actually the number one input in our landfills. So it, that's what really got me riled up was saying, you know, how can I partner with some local juice brands to just really work on what, what the potential is with this ingredient to, to now create value added consumer products um, that put nutrition back into the food system. So it was, it was kind of just a lot of experimenting through the last, my, it was my last semester in college. And ultimately uh, when I presented the idea as kind of a final project, um, I had a couple of professors that took a huge interest in it and were like, you know, we think that this has, this has potential. And, um, so I actually got my first grant to get started out of college from, from the university, which was amazing and oh, wow. gave me, gave me kind of the, the footing to just test it out and get the right permits and everything. Got a cottage food license. So I was producing at my, my home kitchen while I was kind of figuring out, you know, what are we actually going to make from this, this byproduct? There's so much potential. And I think that's the one thing that's been really interesting hearing other entrepreneurs journeys. A lot of people focus in immediately on one category or one product. Um, I think I did a little bit backwards because I think I had this idea of larger picture, like what do I want to accomplish? But I didn't really know what product to, to distill it into. I think I knew I wanted it to be something that was really kid friendly because, you know, my background was a lot of it was also advocacy and, and working in schools and kind of seeing firsthand um, I guess the stigma around eating more fruits and vegetables and also seeing how poorly our, our school system was feeding kids. So I was really thinking from a, an aspect of, I want to provide better nutrition for kids. So it was kind of looking at categories that are very kid friendly and highly consumed amongst young people. Um, but other than that, I mean, I really didn't have the like parameters of what category uh, is this going to be. So it was kind of a long winding, I would say exploration process in the beginning, but you know, that's why we love farmer's markets because they really give you the, the 
bandwidth to be able to test a bunch of things live in front of people. Wow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That makes a ton of sense. I had never thought about that. Just how a lot of people start with a product and go that way. So you just started with a problem, which is ultimately yeah. the smarter way to go about it. So you I mean, think. it can be, yeah, you think, yeah. right? Hopefully <laughs> what, what, what pushed you to start with chips or was chips the first thing you played with and, and wanted no. to mess with? No, you know, we, we started with baked goods. So I, I actually started talking to school food service managers um, at LAUSD, so LA Unified School District. And what I realized was, oh my goodness, kids, their breakfast budget, you know, they're they're getting most of their food from, I think it's like Gold Star Foods. It's like, you know, it's kind of like a air marker, a Cisco. Oh, sure. or, yeah, so if you will. So it was like kind of interesting just to be like, this is a really complex um, space and only these massive manufacturers who can pay. I mean, basically their budget was 80 cents for a kid's breakfast, a dollar 10 for a kid's lunch. Like when you wow. really think about that and what that actually means in terms of the, the types of foods that they, that we can afford to give kids, that is just, we're working with very small budgets to be able to provide healthy, fresh food. So right. at the end of the day, AirPod down. At the end of the day, what that meant was basically you know, they were feeding French fries and pizza sauce counting as your daily vegetable in, at lunch. And for breakfast, it was oftentimes like these really highly refined processed um, baked goods, like muffins sure. that were just like sugar and you know, all that. Oh, all I stuff. remember so, the lunch options yeah. <laughs> I had in Indiana. Yeah. Not I mean, great. I'm, hey, I'm from Chicago. So there, oh, you there go. we go. Okay, cool. <laughs> Love I'm it. in Chicago now. Oh, I'm not, oh, jealous. Kind there of. we go. Only for summer. Only for summer. But <laughs> Well, it's smoky here today. It's like the weirdest thing. Yeah. No. I walked outside yesterday and that whole the whole Canadian wildfire thing is here, which I didn't even know no was happening. way. Yeah, it's weird. Oh, it's goodness. really strange. And it smells like smoke. And it's You're weird. You're going to have to send me a photo after this because I have not heard that yet from, from the fam. So I'm going to yeah, check I will. in with them. I will. It, downtown's That's probably crazy. worse. I'm out in Elmhurst, but it's it was bad. Yeah, it was bad enough yesterday that I had to like not go on a long walk. Like I had to like come home. It definitely... You, you could feel it like you could like I, feel it in your chest it was really weird i cannot believe it that is so crazy that it has reached chicago now wow. yeah it was like in michigan and it's supposed to clear up by tomorrow but it's it's not nearly as bad as it was in new york but still i mean yeah. bad enough that i think we were rated the worst city in the in the world yesterday for air quality is what i just saw in the news this morning oh yeah it was goodness. that bad i know crazy stuff wow i'm just living in the, in, in the dark over here in the light so yeah, you guys, you guys were just immune to the, all we, that. Oh, we already have. Yeah, we have our problems. It'll be like September, October for us is the worst of wild wildfire season. So I'm ready. We're ready for sure. it. We, every year, it's been a it's been a struggle. Um, but yeah, basically, I mean, you know, that was kind of the that was the realization was just like, okay, school food could could use a little fix up. But then realizing the budgets, realizing, oh my goodness, how could how could you ever make this work? Um, kind of pivoted out of the baked goods and and thinking about more. I mean, thinking about more so, okay, well, if I'm going to build a consumer brand, maybe it's going to have to be something that does focus on going into grocery, going, you know, and kind of entering um, the consumer landscape that way. So started then working on a, a cereal product again, because I just was like so hung up on we want to get kids to eat more fruits and vegetables and fiber. And cereal to me felt like a really interesting category because it was so grain based and obviously like grain, sugar. Um, and I, so we created a carrot based cereal, which was really interesting, like, uh, a cinnamon toast crunch knockoff, if you will. Mm. Um, and definitely still have the intentions to launch that in the future. So hopefully that'll be something nice. we can, we can bring back, but, um, ultimately couldn't find a co-packer for that. And so then we, when we kind of, we, when we were looking at really like, what can we actually like scale manufacturing wise, um, veggie chips just seemed like a really interesting category because not only did you know, we, were we able to find some co-packers that were willing to work with fresh produce? I think that was the biggest barrier was not every manufacturer, you know, if you think about like the inputs for chips or you think about the inputs for cereal, dry grains, sugar, oil, water, like it's a pretty much, you know, those types of ingredients to make a batter. And so for us coming in and being like, we're going to use fresh vegetables to make these products. I mean, not every co-packer is super open to that type of innovation. So I, so I finally found, um, we landed on the veggie chip category because a we could find the co-packers to do it, and b because you know we felt like also veggie chips is a category where there is some white space given that most veggie chips are potato starch with a sprinkle of vegetable powder as color, and uh. not a ton of nutrition. Not a, there's no fiber, there's no real nutrition, 
And you know, when I think about veggie chips and what consumers' expectation is, they're looking for something that's a healthier version of a crunchy, salty, like everyone loves chips, right? A, a, a favorite snack. But you know, when you actually turn over the ingredients label and look at the nutrition label of veggie chips, it's just not any better than potato chips. And so I think you know, there felt like there was oh, a I big opportunity. That. I've yeah, never, I'm I mean, not a, I don't eat veggie chips, but I, I, I always had the assumption that they were mainly veggies, to be honest. I'd never, you know, I've never bought yeah, them, but I would have yeah. assumed that. I know. And I feel like that's the thing. I also realize I'm like, parents buy those for kids a lot, right? Because they're like, oh, if I can get my kid to like be comfortable eating something veggie chips and the color, whatever. So yeah, I felt like that was kind of an interesting category to start in that still was like, at the end of the day, like is something that kind of crosses over, you know, of course, I'm, I'm a huge chip eater like I love snacks and so I shop in that category and and obviously like I know you know people who are older than us obviously shop in that category but also people who are younger it's just felt like it was something where it's like everyone eats salty snacks like this is a great place to start and introduce a new idea and people are willing to try new things also which I think is a fun aspect of the salty snack category love that very cool so then when you landed on that did you go and find a co-packer right away or what was kind of like step one of creating a product? I found actually, so from kind of the the iterations before I had started working with a pastry chef who worked at, um, she actually, one of the juice shop managers that I was working with knew her. And so we started working together. Um, she has a great restaurant out here now in, in LA called Just What I Needed. Her name was Justine, but um, started working with her. So she actually led a team of, you know, we did this food waste product development competition over at, um, I think it was at Cal Poly Pomona. And I met three amazing interns through that, that food waste product development competition who were really passionate about the food waste space and who just were, who created some amazing products from would-be wasted ingredients. So we took that and basically uh, had a team of four of us that were just working in the kitchen and um, working in like a $25 an hour rental kitchen through Kitchen United, which is a ghost kitchen out here in LA. And we were just kind of testing recipes. And once we got, I think it was like a couple, probably like three months of recipe development. And then once we got to a place where we were like, all right, we have a good base of the chip. I took that over to a co-packer. And of course, everything changed so drastically once you bring it to a co-packer. So the product that we actually ended up coming out with was so far different from, you know, the ingredients and kind of general composition was roughly you know was 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 all pretty much the same but then it was just the uh the way that we had to kind of pull the levers to deal with the fresh produce ingredients in this facility that's not used to dealing with that um that made the the product a lot different so it was a really interesting journey I definitely that was my first time like being in the co-packing space and I was I remember being so nervous about running these R&D trials and obviously it gets so expensive starting to scale up that way. So going from kind of like test kitchen, farmer's markets to, oh my goodness, now I have to book this facility for a full day and it's going to cost me like eight grand, right? Not including ingredients or anything else. So um, it was really interesting, but yeah, I didn't ever get a professional R&D person involved really, just like working with my co-packer kind of hand in hand. We, hmm. um, we, we developed the product together and now, you know, fast forward to four years later, you know, we've done so many iterations and tweaks and and whatnot. And I just started working with somebody who is, you know, ex Frito Lay. So he understands the chip space nice. and kind of trying to figure out like, how do we balance more of, you know, my goals, which are maximizing the upcycled content in the product, maximizing nutrition, but also like making something that's truly just a delicious, salty snack that everyone can enjoy. So it's been really fun to work with people who I think bring different, bring different aspects of, um, you know, what they optimize for into into the the R&D space and so it's it's honestly the supply chain and the R and the R&D are two things that I think just maybe because of the science background are two things that I just really love and and kind of have enjoyed um building in in this journey and process that's so cool yeah I mean it's mm-hmm. it's it's wild when you just dive in and try to figure it out right which I feel like it's like the key of going zero to one is just jumping in talking to people trying to figure out how the process will work that that is how you develop the product. I always love to also jump back because I think for people who are just trying to get into CPG, mm-hmm. the other side that I'm sure you also had to figure out, unless you have a background mm-hmm. in this that I'm not aware of, how did you go about creating the logo, finding packaging, mm-hmm. like just doing all of the creative that goes to to not only getting the product, 
but like having something the products in like that whole side of it i always feel like goes no one really hits on it very much but what do you remember some of the early steps you took to get all the packaging and logo figured out and created yeah i mean i i had a friend and i think everyone goes such a different route with this I had a friend, like, again, I started so grassroots. I started in farmer's markets. And so I had a friend who designed like all of the packaging. She's a great illustrator. She was at the beginning of her career too. So it was really fun because I think for her, it was an opportunity to just, you know, get her feet wet as, as she was building more of a portfolio. But for me, of course, it was like free branding basically. Um, And so, you know, she did all of the first packaging designs and we, I think I started learning how to use illustrator just because I was so rapidly like iterating what the product was and all that. So started using Illustrator a bit myself, not not as much for design as like as more so just, you know, being able to make quick tweaks, sure. which I think is really important in the early days, just being able to be really limber and, and lean. And I was printing labels from the farmers markets like at my home printer, you know? So it was oh, very wow. much it was very much just like we're just gonna kinda I mean, because everything was in flux. Everything was 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 iterating and everything was kind of um, needed to be really flexible. But then when we scaled, we found a small co-packer actually for the, the line of cereals we were doing. And so there we started getting some professionally printed labels. Um, and again, working with the same designer. And then I had another team member who was pretty handy with Illustrator. So just making kind of like any tweaks that we needed there. Um, it wasn't until 2019 that we actually went out and we're like, all right, we're launching the veggie chips. We're going to, you know, I came out of the Target um, Accelerator and they, through the Target Incubator, they had a $10,000 grant. So I actually put that full $10,000 just to say, you know, we're going to do a, we're going to do the branding. We're going to do the, the, um, and we're actually going to get someone who can do really like an evaluation of um, this, the whole brand concept and how we should bring it to life in the packaging. So we went to a local design agency called The Farm um, here in Pasadena and worked with their team. It was such a wonderful process to be able to kind of carve out like not only the the branding itself, but also, or the packaging itself, but also really going back and doing kind of a research and strategy. So they were like looking at the landscape and saying, you know, how do we carve out something really different and unique for this brand? And they're the ones that actually pulp, they, they loved the name Pulp Chips. I think at that point I was like, you know, Pulp Pantry was a name that came out of a classroom project. I really want to like, I want to shed that layer and just and come out with something that um, it has more maybe, um, of a long-term view and they were like pulp is what makes this unique like you can't call it veggie chips because veggie chips is a category that people don't have trust in anymore or that you know there is so much I would say um there's so much kind of greenwashing of what a veggie chip is in the category that they were like I don't think they were like we want to come out with a name that's going to be really unique and memorable and so we came out with pulp chips and I remember being so nervous about that but I think that was the cool part about working with really a creative a, a more of a design agency is I think like they celebrate the stuff that is going to make you unique and stand out. Whereas I think at that point in my journey, I was just, you know, I was like, okay, we're launching our first commercial product. We ha- it has to be, it has to be commercial. It has to be, you know, something that, that can fit on the shelves and, and resonate with consumers. And so sure. I feel like that was a really good balance. Um, but I will say that like, I've talked to so many founders who I think have done it a really interesting way too, where, they just partner with one designer. Like they just find an amazing illustrator online and they say, Hey, I mean, can you mock up my, my friend Becca from Fishwife? She, she always talks about this. She's an amazing, I mean, she has an iconic brand that was created by this illustrator. Um, and basically, I mean, she, she was going to a couple illustrators and was like, Hey, can you create for me just a mock-up of a logo and the top of the packaging? And obviously she paid those designers for their time, but then she kind of went with the designer that I think really felt like it it matched the style and, and everything that she was going for the most because I do feel like at the end of the day if you find an illustrator that really resonates with you know the personality that you're trying to bring to life in the brand that's such a faster way to go about it than working with an agency and way cheaper too because you know I think working with illustrators you might only spend a couple of grand you're not talking about 10 20 I mean I've talked to agencies where it's like hundred twenty thousand dollars for a branding wow. it's insane and you so haven't sold I, anything yet and you haven't sold anything yet. And I think, you know, that it's obviously like if you made, there's something about it that feels secure and safe. Like these guys know what they're doing. They're CPG designers, but you also do come out with stuff that just kind of looks like everything else on shelf. And okay. it's, it's, you know, there's more rules and boundaries. And I feel like there is something really interesting about building an emerging brand and going the route of just like, 
I'm going to choose a style that I really like. Um, and I'm just going to go, go all in on that. And, and then you have a designer who's going to be with you through the life cycle of the brand. So it's like really creating that, that, um, cause I don't, for example, like I don't work with my agency on a day to day anymore. I'll ask them to do small design projects here and there, but it really does get expensive. So I do feel like that, you know, I don't know, coming at it from now being, being a couple years in the future, I'm like, I think that's a really interesting way to start is just finding one, one illustrator working with that. Of course, it just depends as a founder for me, for example, I'm not a very aesthetic, like I'm not a very, um, you know, I don't have like a collection of illustrators like in my back pocket. And it's sure, like yeah. for me, I was kind of more like, I want to explore. I don't really know what, which direction I want to go with the branding because that just wasn't my background or strong suit. But um, now the brand has evolved, of course, it's like you start to bring more things to life and you start to, you know, you start to celebrate more of the unique aspects of the business. But anyways, I think it can just be that that journey and process looks so different for everyone. And I think I'm always taking notes too on what have other founders done that have, that's been really interesting um, working outside of the agency perspective. So, yeah. For people listening who, I mean, I, I think that's great, great advice because I, I would assume there's not very many people unless they have a lot of funding that can afford to go the big agency route or if yeah. they do, it's just going to eat up a lot of what they have in cash. Do you totally. think, is there a platform or a way to find these types of illustrators that you know of or recommend? Mm -hmm. Just curious for people listening, because I'm sure this is, this is something that people struggle with. Honestly, I was, I just was going to say Instagram, you know, and I think Behance, like I looked at Behance and found some great people through that. Um, I found one girl who does a ton of ongoing um, illustration for me on more Instagram and whatnot. I found her through Instagram. Oh, cool. Instagram, um, I would have never thought of. That's a good idea. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think it's like kind of a walking portfolio for people, you know, it's like they're, they're constantly posting new work and whatnot. Whereas maybe some of those other like Behance type things, it's a little hard for discoverability. Um, so yeah, I would say that's probably the main place that I would say, like, I mean, of course it's, it's hard. And, um, there's actually a, a trick that one of my friends showed me in, um, Google, you can, you know, I, some people are gonna have to look this up, but like you can type into the search bar, something like in Instagram and then, you know, semicolon and basically type in the phrase that you're looking for. So like maybe it's illustration or illustrator. Um, and you can actually, I think just because Google is so much easier to see like a grid of all this past history, yeah. you can actually see photos that are tagged or that um, use that phrase. So there's some interesting ways that you can kind of be a little more maybe efficient with like how you're searching Instagram, just given that, you know, it's hard when you're on your phone and you're, you only see one photo at a time. Like maybe you just want to be, make that process a little bit faster. So um, people should definitely look that up and, and use that as a, as a tool for, for finding the right illustrator on Instagram. That's a, that's a great gem from this episode. Love that. <laughs> and then a little gem. Yeah, exactly. And so, so you have the, that's how you figured out how to do the packaging, the branding. We talked about mm -hmm. getting the initial product. It sounds like there was a decent amount of, of money that went into, you know, running a commercial kitchen, um, getting design, at least something. Yeah. So yeah. you were, you were, you said you weren't too, too long out of college. Did you, did you bootstrap this or did you raise a little friends and family around or how did you, yeah. how did you fund the business? So I started when I graduated from college, I started working for a mentor of mine, like three or four days a week. Um, and he was also in the social enterprise space. He ran the LA kitchen and, um, basically what his whole, um, his whole mission was, was taking people out of recidivism and giving them a culinary job training program so that they could be placed in the restaurant industry mm. in Los Angeles. So really, I think you know that was, and he also had a, he, his actually background also was in fighting food waste. So he would work with distributors to take any produce that was unsaleable. And that's what he would use to make um, all the meals. And we were making different product lines out of that kitchen space. And again, using the labor force that we had trained from this, um, from this program. So it was really, that was, that was, I mean, honestly, that, that was like such a fun, interesting space to work in. But then on the weekends, I would be doing my farmer's markets. I would be, you know, in my kitchen. So it was, a, it was two years of that probably after graduating um, and very minimal investment. Like I said, my, my university gave me my first grant. My, my professor literally just said, he was like, what do you need to just actually get this started? And of course me being so naive, I'm like $7,000, I think will do the trick. And so there I go. I get my, I got a free, um, all my businesses license licenses, like creating my LLC and everything came out of the small business clinic at USC. So that was free. 
awesome. aside from like any filing fees. And then I got my permits and then I, I got some of the equipment I needed or like the labels or whatever else. And I was off to the races and that was, you know, that was me and farmers markets for, I think I did farmers markets for like, yeah, a full, a full over a year probably. Um, and then I moved into a small commercial kitchen where again, it was rent by the hour um, and was working with the team to, and I started selling in like 40 retailers probably. Oh, wow. So oh, that's a big was, jump. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I started, it was obviously a slow kind of slow process of getting into all these retailers. Air One was actually one of our first retailers back in the day when they loved small brands and like hand labeled products and packaging. It's changed a lot now. Yeah. Not but, the same. Um, you know, but I'll say, and then kind of organically, like started moving into the, um, into a small co-packer where we were paying, I would say like every production run was only, I mean, this is so small now to me, it's like 4,000 to $5,000 for everything built in like finished product. So at the end of the day, I mean, realistically, like our launch costs were really, really small and we were being super lean and scrappy about everything. But at the end of the day, like, of course, yes, we did need some startup capital. So we were, I went through so many pitch competitions, so many like grant programs. That was really the main bulk of, um, you know, where I was getting funding from. And then a small, yes, like a small loan from, from, um, from family, which I definitely intend to, to pay back soon. Nice. <laughs> a no, no that's interest great. loan, a no interest loan. But I would say like for us total over literally through like maybe 2015 to 2019, I mean, in total, maybe it was like, $200,000 injected into, and none of it at once, right? Like every year maybe it was like, maybe it was like 40,000 total needed here for the first co-packing run. Really towards 2019, when we were actually going into co-packing and then of course um, having to print packaging, print, you know, instead of going the label route, that's when things started really adding up. So probably in like 2019 was the most expensive year, just actually commercializing a product line. And, um, and yeah otherwise i think like spread through that year those years it was really really small um in terms of like the total input into the brand but i mean i've seen people come out of the gates just you know raising a ton of money um to get started and i feel like at the end of the day um it's it's not a bad idea to raise money up front because it is an expensive business i think i was very naive about how expensive the business would be and so because of that it was a very piecemeal approach um for me yeah, I, I could. I mean, it sounds like you were very thoughtful though, and and slow and steady, and and yeah. didn't just like over leverage yourself. I, I know, I agree though. Anyone who's not in CPG that gets into it, I, I know from my days at RX, it was wild to see like how much it costs to produce the product, to then warehouse the product, and then you're waiting for POs, and then you oh. send the product, and you get paid sixty days later, but there's deductions. Yes. Uh, oh and meanwhile, gosh. you're trying to pay everybody on payroll. It, it it really is a wild game. The I mean, the other thing that I learned the hard way for sure was like 20, 2019 through twenty twenty one, I was self distributed. So we actually distributed like five hundred doors, fully just shipping product out of our out of our warehouse, like no wow. distributors coming to pick it up and. Part of that was, you know, Whole Foods, we were allowed to go direct with them because, and we got to 35 stores in the Southern Pacific region. Um, so we were allowed to go direct until we got planogrammed, right? And so we were in the full region. And then with Target, we launched in 400 stores after the Target incubator and Target picks up from you. Um, so you can kind of have that as like, you know, you give them a 5% deduction on your invoices for them handling the freight. So it was really interesting just because, you know, we were able to skirt around a lot of the, what I think gets so expensive, which is when you have kind of multiple hands touching the product. And like you talked about the deductions, when I, in 2022, I launched in um, two of the big broadline distributors for the natural foods, um, industry, Unify and Kahi. Mm -hmm. And that was where I was so, I mean, I, I still at that point had bootstrapped, I think in, in 2022 was kind of the year that I was like, I can no longer, <laughs> I can no longer do this. And we need to, you know, we need to raise capital to keep going because I think it just, the business changes so fundamentally once you have these distributors and you have these fees and you have these cash flow cycles. And yeah, I mean, with everything, you know, being a small brand and, and um, I didn't want to sign like personal guarantees and things like that. So I wasn't able to, you know, it was, it got to a point where it was just like, oh my goodness, I'm, I'm, I'm experiencing out of stocks. It's crazy. Like every other month we were out of stock of product because I was having to wait till we had enough cash to go back into production. Um, and that's really, the, I think that's where 
it's so hard now to for me to imagine truly bootstrapping SCPG brands the way that I had done it unless you don't go the distribution route. Like I just I just it it seemed like it was still hard, of course, but it seemed like it could be possible. Like, oh yeah, you can bootstrap and you can, you know, build it. But I think you definitely it just feels like nowadays you do need some startup capital just to be able to really deal with the cash flow cycles and everything that kind of comes with being in the CPG business. And I was so, so naive when I was, uh, you know, when I was jumping into that, because I think it's just, yeah, it's, and it's something people had warned me about, but I feel like until you really jump in, you're like, oh, I, I get it now. You know, I get how all these things kind of come together and, and, and make it really challenging. Do you, do you think if you would do it all over again, would you change the types of retailers or the specific retailers that you'd go into in order to like avoid having to raise capital to go to the yeah. distribution route? I mean, I think it's hard because obviously like you're trying to support your living too. So you need the volume mm -hmm. and, the, and, and that's really the biggest problem I think is like, yes, you can definitely go. And I love like people always talk about the shoppy shops, right? And going into like the, the really, um, the kind of cutting edge independent stores and like finding the, and I mean, there's so many around the country that are um, these awesome cur curatorial stores that mm -hmm. you can, you can launch and you can have a direct business with. Um, I think there's a couple of founders that are doing this where they're really like, they have built up a good volume where they're maybe in like 800 stores and they're just doing all direct sales and they're able to support themselves that way. Um, but I think, you know, it is really hard because I feel like I started feeling the pressure in 2020 where I was like I need the volume to be able to support myself and um and so it makes it so that there's only a few retailers like you can really turn on I mean Target being one of them right where you like turn on and you're like yes now we have the volume you know now we have kind of the the um economies of scale if you will and so um I think looking back on it I do you know I think I think there is kind of that what everyone says in the industry, which is like start in the natural channel and specialty channel, then you can go to conventional, then you can go to mass, then you can go to convenience. Like there's kind of that step ladder approach. And I do feel like for the most part, a lot of that wisdom for maybe most like better for you brands is, is pretty true. But I think there's also a lot of other alternative channels. Like I've seen so many founders launch in food service to start, for example, um, which can be a huge volume driver for your business. And also be a great margin channel that can help support your your growth in retail. So I do feel like, you know, veggie chips maybe not the best product for food service, but I do feel like, you know, there's there's different channel strategies that people can be really smart about based on kind of the, the product line that they're planning to launch. And of course, it's not a one size fits all approach. Um so I think just being really smart about that and understanding the costs of doing business with each channel going into it is really, really crucial. So talking to other founders and being like Truly, what is kind of what are all the back end costs that you're experiencing um, working with this distributor, working with this retailer? Because I, I think, like you said, I mean, until you're looking at a P&L and you're like, oh, my God, like, look at all these fees, look at all this. You know, you, it's so hard to conceptualize what that's actually going to look like. Oh, for sure. Yeah, I know. Even even at our X bar, we would look at we would try to get to a customer level P&L. It's hard, especially if, yeah. you're, if you're selling to Unify and Kehi. Um, but that is, that's the right way to think about it. I think too, because if you don't, I think brands chase the top line number, but if you yeah. stopped and looked at the bottom line number of each channel, I think it might change where you'd want to go, uh, depending on where you're at in that cash flow process. Yeah. I know I've always that's wondered so if it's, I haven't really seen a lot of brands do it, but I've always be curious if, if brands could launch and do like e-com with yeah. some specialty B2B, like really build up a really healthy base. Cause RX bar did that. But yeah. then instead of going the the conventional route, mm -hmm. is like just jump to like a club if it's even possible. Mm -hmm. Like, could you convince a Costco or a Sam's to take you with the success in this small specialty hub, knowing that you think you have a product that a Costco consumer would also love, and you kind of like just jump to that? And you, because I always feel like that middle is actually where the the most expensive piece comes. It's That's like you need so it to get that escape velocity, but it's worth, yeah. I would argue at least, because I used to run revenue management and trade management. Wow. Um, it's, where, it's where such a mass majority of our expenses came in at, from a trade in just overall deductions perspective. So I was like, so yeah, I don't know. I don't know how you would do it. I'm sure there's, I'm sure there's, there, there's brands that have figured that out at some point. I'd have to do more research, but to it's, me, it's like healthy margins on both sides. And you, can you just skip the middle? 
That's so interesting. I'm going to be hitting you up after this podcast, by the way. Okay, let's <laughs> do it. I, let's do it. Talk, I definitely <laughs> want to talk more about that. And I just feel like it's, I mean, I, 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 I have seen actually like Sam's Club and Costco have been looking for more better for you emerging brands because their consumers are asking for that too. And I, I, think I mean, you, you think about yeah. the consumers that are going to Costco. It's, I mean, again, I'm generalizing completely, but here in Chicago, it's the same people that I know that are still going to Whole Foods that are still yeah. like, it's, it's people that are, they're shopping maybe for larger families, but that's not even true because me and my wife have one, one son, our kids five months yeah. and we go to Costco all the time. So I don't know. Um, I think it's a really interesting play. I was just talking to a founder the other day who does some private label and he's starting to just pivot and just thinking around like, can I go mostly e-com and direct business and then jump to club and just do yeah. the highest margin retailers and just skip all of the, the expensive middle. I really love that. And I think it is like, so I think that's such a fun place to put energy and time really is like yeah. in your channel strategy and not being so crazy. I'm going to open all these, these doors and just really being intentional. And I, I honestly like even, I, I mean, I talked to some of my smartest founder friends and they are building P and L's by, by channel, by customer. And you know, they are, they are, they are exiting relationships with some of their customers where they're seeing these extractive costs of doing business. And they're like, we're, I'm not making any money. I'm just, yeah. you know, it's like, so it's, it's really interesting to think about firing customers, but I feel like I've seen a couple brands that are, <laughs> that are doing that sure. nowadays. Well, and, yeah, not, not to try to like act like I know what I'm talking about, but I, no. just, I love listening to people. And, and I was actually funny. I was listening to um, someone this morning talking about, you know, especially even if you're a brand, a key that this guy talked about was when you start the brand, think about the end goal first and build mm. backwards. Mm -hmm. And to give people some insight here, like when we got completely rolled into Kellogg, um, yeah. one of the big learning lessons for me as I was learning from the Kellogg team is a lot of the big CPG brands that are going to be the ones that acquire the, the younger startup brands, they yeah. don't know e-com very well, transparently. Like they haven't figured mm -hmm. it out still. So we were helping them with that. Club, they kind of know, but they're just selling things that have been there for forever. And honestly, I think yeah. they're going to slowly but surely get phased out. So yeah. we were helping with that. What I would argue is they, those major, major CPG brands, they have the capital required to be successful and the resources on the ground to hit food service, conventional. Like mm -hmm. they just know that better than any startup brand mm -hmm. I've ever met. So it's funny because if you think about it, even if your end goal is to get acquired, if you can build a huge base on the, on the specialty and e-com side, and then you can also figure out how to get in a club, and then you sell the fact that you're not even in this huge swath of yes. middle ground, and like yeah. that's the opportunity that they're buying, and then they can put yeah. that into their huge machine and run with it. I really think yeah. that's an interesting concept for, for you know, CPG brands over the next decade. It's, it's just that changing. All right, everybody, we're back. Sorry, we got cut off. We had a little technical difficulties, but no worries. We're back. Caitlin, welcome back to the show. How are you? You know, I'm doing, it's a Monday. It's a Monday. So we're just, we're jumping right in, but back yeah. in the Chicago area, which is, which is good. Oh, that's um, right. You said that before we hit record. Where, where in Chicago are you? I'm in Elmhurst, like out West. I'm in Winneka now. So oh, I'm nice. at my, my parents home and I'm going to be hitting the road tomorrow to do a bunch of demos and brand ambassador trainings around fresh time um, stores. So shout oh, out cool. to fresh time. Yeah. Yeah. Shout out to fresh time. Very nice. Are you going to be out it. West at all? Suburb West suburbs? No, I'm going to be going over to, I'm training a brand ambassador in, um, Indianapolis area and then one in Cincinnati area. So going to be hitting kind of more Indiana, Ohio, but maybe we'll jump over to Naperville when we're back. Um, I'll keep you posted. I don't know. Is that nice. the closest store to you or what's, what's mm, the closest question? Store? Fresh time, pro probably that. I know there's one in Oak Park or River Forest. Yeah. That's yeah, yeah, yeah. I, my in-laws are in River Forest, so that's where I've always been to a fresh time. That's a good question. I don't know. There's probably there's probably one closer than that. Neighborville's a little hike. It's like 30 minutes from me. Um, oh, yeah. that's that's a little too far. That's funny. I'm from Indianapolis, so that's 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 cool that we done that. Love there. it. Nice. I love it. I know. I I um actually have never been to like I played tennis in high school, so I've been yeah. to a lot of different r random you know places in in the Midwest. But I feel like it's one of those things with so much of this that you grow up somewhere and you don't really, when you're, when you're growing up, you don't really explore much outside mm. of sure. where you're, where you're planted. So I'm yeah. honestly, I'm, I'm excited to just explore more of, um, more cities across the, the Midwest that I haven't seen yet. Yeah. I'm sure you'll have plenty of chances with uh, pulp pantry for that. Yeah. Um, 
where we left off, I wanted to kind of jump back in and just give everyone a good understanding. I mean, you're hitting on um, on fresh time. Can you give everyone else a rundown? Just like where are some of the big retailers where folks can find you guys now around the country? Like what are some of the big retail points that you wanted to share? Yeah, yeah. Whole Foods in the Southern Pacific region is um, one of our partners. And then Bristol Farms also, we, you know, I would say most of our distribution is West Coast. So we're in about 800 doors. Um, we've, you know, opened up, I would say everywhere from California, Arizona, Nevada, Hawaii, um, Oregon, Washington, even Utah. So we've got Good Earth Markets in Utah, um, Oregon and Washington now new seasons, which was just activated this June. And then in the Bay Area, we're working with Molly Stones, um, Oliver's and some other in Berkeley Bowl, some other great retailers there. And then in Texas, we're in Central Market. And in the Midwest, we got fresh time. And then on the East Coast, we have Mom's Organic Market. So um, we definitely, you know, we went pretty, I think our distribution mainly has been focused on the West Coast just because that's where our team is. That's where we've been able to be the most hands-on support. But it has been fun to just, we have two test retailers, I would say, in, in the Midwest. Well, one is fresh time and then on the East Coast, Mom's Organic Markets. But realistically, we're not, you know, we're kind of just going to feel out how are we doing in those stores Are we when we're ready to expand um, test out what's working in those stores before we really, you know, I would say expand regionally in any way. Sure. No, that makes sense. What's it been like getting into some of these bigger retailers? Like what are some of the lessons learned or anything specific for folks listening today that you would say has been a, like a surprise? I think the biggest thing is just not getting ahead of your skis. I would say like, you know, even for me, the decision to launch in fresh time and mom's organic was just a lot of support from the buyer for kind of how they were going to promote the product. What were we going to be able to, you know, run displays? For example, we brought in our shippers into fresh time in the Midwest. So we had like branded shippers and in store. And I think finding buyers that are really willing to partner with you on um, promotion outside of just demos. And, you know, I would say beyond that though, like we've had opportunities to launch in other retailers where, maybe just for me, it was like, okay, well, this is almost like borderline natural conventional. I mean, it has a lot of crossover with conventional and maybe we're not quite ready for that yet. Maybe there isn't as much of a progressive demo program that we can um, support stores with. And, you know, I, I think for me, the biggest, the biggest piece that has been important that I've realized for success in store is having boots on the ground to support those stores. And so I think realizing that has been something that has really restricted where we're willing to expand because it's based on, is there enough of a density of stores that we can support a part-time brand ambassador that's going to be just dedicated to doing demos, you know, Friday through Monday or whatever, whatever days are best for traffic. And so that's been kind of the really restrictive factor. And I would say it's something that I've learned the hard way that just putting the product on shelf is never going to be the thing that ensures success on shelf. And so you really need to have a pretty robust, like 360 degree marketing, you know, strategy for each store launch that you, um, that you take on. And so that's, that's been a really good lesson in just how to better limit kind of your, your growth by what you can actually support and, and kind of handle as a team. That's wild. Yeah. Cause I would assume that's not the strategy that a lot of brands take. And then you, they probably learn the hard way. What has it been like trying to find brand ambassadors in those regions? Are you like, how are you going about finding folks to, to sp like fit that specific role? You know, a lot of it, I, I love personally, like managing brand ambassadors and hiring them internally because we get so much data and feedback from our brand ambassadors about what's working, what's not working, specific flavors that are maybe, you know, receiving like feedback that could be improved upon. Um, and so that's been really important. And so I really, what I look to do is hire either from college students. So mm. college students, I mean, obviously the, the downside of that is you're having to turn over probably every six months with a new um, brand ambassador. But I find that, you know, offering somebody a paid job where they're really um, able to get the sales experience. And, and also we have a training program we put them through. Oh, can nice. be really valuable, especially for people when it's their first paid job. So I found a lot of success hiring college students um, for these types of roles and trying to give them some responsibilities outside of just store demos. So whether that's creating content in store or, um, you know, some, some other level of like getting creative with alternative sales channels to support, um, that retail area. So it's, it's been really fun to, uh, come up with a kind of a training program and then just a protocol for how to manage, um, college students who, who are paid brand ambassadors. But beyond that, we're also just finding people who are, you know, honestly asking store team members, who are some of the best demo staff that come into your store? Like, oh, who nice. do you love working with? And I've found one of our brand ambassadors that way who 
she then, it turns out, you know, has other family members that do demos. And so it's kind of interesting just because you never know where you're going to, where you're going to find people, great people. But I think getting referrals from especially um, the store teams has been some of the best brand ambassadors we've worked with because, you know, those store staff are like, we love working with this person. And of course they want to see them in store more. And so I think that's, that's always been a great stamp of approval too. That makes, yeah, that makes a ton of sense. I never thought about that. Just going directly to the stores and being mm-hmm. like, who do you yeah. love working with? That's a great idea. Yeah. Yeah. Nice. Very smart. Um, well, it sounds like you've been very methodical about it. Um, and I hope, I wish you the best of luck as you continue to to grow retail distribution. I know that's like an uphill battle and it's an exciting, exciting part of the evolution of, of growing a, a CPG brand, but also a, a challenge. Are there any and you don't have to share any retailers if it's, you yeah. know, you're working on deals and, and all that in the background. But is there anything launching soon that's anything different that you haven't mentioned yet that people should, should if they're listening to this in a few weeks or months from now, that maybe they can go check out? You know, we're in a really good place with retail distribution where it's like, you know, we're just at the point where I think we, again, the learning being really demos have been the best way to support our retail stores. So I think actually what I'm most excited about, we have two brand partners in the sauce space. So we've been working a lot oh. with Pitch and Sauce. Um, doing some demos with them in different areas like Chicago area, actually for, for a fresh time um, as, and, and in LA, we're starting to work with um, Credo Foods, which is a, a plant-based queso brand. And so I guess that's, what's, what's more exciting to me is being like, we're really going to build out a robust demo program where not only do we have our own reps in stores, but we're also doubling up with, um, with their, our sauce partners to split the costs of demos. So and smart. to Yeah. And so I think, just growing that presence in store and honestly how that will impact velocity. I mean, we've seen in some of the stores that we first launched in a good example would be Austin, Texas. We were doing no demos, right. And we were probably moving only three units per SKU per week um, in, in the Austin area store. And then when we jumped over to demos, we're seeing now over eight units per SKU per week oh, wow. and, um, without the demos present anymore. So it's, it was a six month program that we really committed to. And I think seeing that firsthand, how, how much of an impact that has on sales um, you know, it gets me really excited about what the, really what the revenue and productivity potential is in each of our stores that we are currently in, where we might not be really maxing out, um, what the, blo- what the potential velocities are. So I think that's the first hurdle to tackle is how do we really support our stores best? And then from there, you know, think about, um, where is our customer also wanting to shop mm-hmm. where we can grow distribution? I'm hearing a lot. And you talked about this, like you were mentioning Costco and club and yeah. kind of skipping over the conventional channel. And actually, a lot of my customers have, have said that where they're like, you know, I shop at Costco, I shop at Sam's Club and uh, really wanting to see more, more better for you products in stores there. So I think that's a really interesting, that was an interesting parallel. I actually just heard that from one of our brand ambassadors today in, in um, outside of Indianapolis. She was like, what about Costco and Sam's Club? Like, I'd love to you know, demo there. That's where everyone shops over here and all that. So it's, it's just super interesting to hear feedback like that. Yeah, no, I mean, I I do think the demographic for most better for you food and beverage, it would it just makes a lot more sense. And I know, yeah. just from some of the brands I work with, it does seem like Costco. It, again, this is just anecdotal. It does seem like they're opening the the doors a little bit more to brands, at least mm-hmm. for some rotational tests, just to see how they perform. Yes. Um, yeah. And it I've seems seen like a the, lot of road shows too. Yeah, a lot of a lot road, road shows. shows. I, I know the one challenge is just like, how do you get trial? Like, what's the easiest way to do that when you yeah. have a limited test? It's so important to make sure the velocities are there if you want to yep. stay in Costco. Yeah. Um, but no, I like that a lot. I think that it makes a ton of sense. Your type of product, I think, would crush at Costco. So. Hopefully the Costco gods are listening. <laughs> we we actually have talked to a Costco buyer. She okay. wanted us to do road show, road shows. Um, we had one in the Southwest. We talked to the buyer there, and then in Los Angeles. But I think the challenge with road shows is you know there are so many other expenses that come mm-hmm. with doing the road show, and of course it's like you. So it's just it's weighing you know weighing the opportunity. You know, is it better to go in for a rotation and be able to kind of support with demos um, for that full rotational schedule, or is it? you know, or do you go straight into roadshows and, you know, you don't have to commit to a different pack size or anything like that with the roadshows. So there's different, sure. there's different benefits, I think, to both, but, yeah. Um, but yeah, it hasn't been quite the right moment yet for us. So I think just sure. making sure that we're really ready to kind of support and pull out all the stops to make it a success. Exactly. Yeah. I think one tip for anyone listening to that I've, I've, I guess on my side of things, I've seen work really well, uh, is actually pairing 
Costco rotations with Instacart campaigns. So interesting. I don't know if that's something you've looked into, but I mean, you can target your Costco. If you have a specific Costco SKU, so if you change the ounces or anything just for Costco, yeah. you can target those, but because Instacart won't show you which retailers you're getting the sales from. Yeah. But the back way, the back door way to do that is just build a campaign around that specific SKU in that retailer. Mm -hmm. So you can call it like the Costco campaign. Um, but we've seen that like I, I, with my business, I, we see brands do really, really well with that of, of folks who, uh, whether they shop at Costco in store or not, at least that helps you, your velocity story. Um, Absolutely. if you're also on Instacart, um, as Absolutely. long as That's the ROAS is there, it's, it's I will say you. I've heard some friends saying that their Instacart campaigns or their Amazon fresh campaigns for, for whole foods and like Bristol farms pickup have had the most insane ROAS on those mm -hmm. campaigns. And we actually don't, we haven't done any Instacart advertising yet, but I just got on, on boarded with them. So I'm excited to test oh, that out you. too, just, yeah. just to see like what the, what the opportunities are there because there are so many more shoppers like me even yeah. you know shopping online for for delivery or pickup it comparatively across different platforms it's one of the highest row as performers i see is instacart that's really interesting yeah i think the i think folks are genuinely like similar to amazon right you're i think those two platforms to me stand out as folks are are usually like if you're on instacart you know you're paying a little more already so you're less yeah. price conscious i would say or yeah your price elasticity is there because yep. you already know it's not the cheapest place yeah um so i think it has a little honestly a little bit of an advantage because you you That's know you're paying a little bit more just by buying it through instacart and getting it delivered um so i think people are just it's just convenience so people That's you know they put that comparative price point to the side for a second because they know they know they're paying a little more anyway so they're less like apples to apples trying to make sure it's the cheapest so wild. that's my at least my guess I, I, there's no data to back that up but that's just my guess mm. from my own no, like user it, we experience always have to develop a hypothesis somehow right. they're trying to figure it out too exactly <laughs> exactly exactly <laughs> um well as we move into the end of this caitlin uh, the, the questions i love to ask every founder that comes on here um first one is tools so as a founder who's got a million different mm -hmm. things moving in a million different directions um what tools do you use to plan you know yearly goals whether that's business personal mm. all the way down to just like the shit you got to get done today are you a, a planner person pen and paper do you use apps like what do you use to kind of organize and hit goals and, and really steam ahead each day there was a really interesting um like it was almost a personality test i did when i was in the target incubator and I, the, I rang this like piece of it rang so true which was i am such a collector of information and for me, like Airtable has been kind of the, the go-to database mm. to hold, whether it's, you know, when we were doing product development on the veggie chips, we, we vetted so many manufacturers, so many suppliers, and just like keeping all of that information organized and stored in one place. And so when we're, you know, looking at kind of alternative sourcing opportunities or even produce suppliers, like for me, that's been, you know, a big goal has also been how do we partner more effectively with, um, produce suppliers who also have a massive sales and distribution arm where mm. potentially they could, you know, working with them, partnering with them on reducing their waste output would actually, you know, not only is that a value to them, but if we can plug into their sales and distribution, hopefully that also helps to grow the impact that we can have on their, on their kind of supply chain and their byproduct output. So growing kind of this database of even, you know, who are the produce suppliers where we really with the long-term lens of, you know, we want to build a really cohesive partnership with, with, um, with our supplier partners. I think stuff like that, you know, obviously for me, Airtable has been kind of the go-to collect all that information, store it somewhere, have it organized. Um, in terms of like long-term planning though, and, and, and really goals, I mean, I feel like, you know, I've done some stuff with just kind of recently going through the fundraising process, um, just more so charting out, you know, what are like, even thinking about use of proceeds and really what's going to have the most, the most impact and how does that influence runway and how, where, what are the next milestones we want to, um, we want to hit so that when we're kind of at the end of this, we, we know like, Hey, this is, you know, here are the telltale signs that this is going to be successful with, um, with further future investment. So I feel like a lot of that has just been honestly Excel and kind of keeping it all in one place where, um, you know, you're charting, you're charting the course and kind of also measuring the impact of, of kind of the, the dollars that are getting invested into marketing. Um, so yeah, I mean, I, you know, and then also, also just old school analog, like journals and lots of written notes and, and whatnot, just to kind of keep everything in, in one place and keep thinking about the future and keep it organized too. So I'm not, 
I don't have any crazy productivity tools for you, sure. unfortunately. But, no, yeah, that's fine. You know. <laughs> yeah, everyone's got their own process. I, I think yeah. it's an interesting one just with people who are doing, you know, high-performing things. Yeah. Um, the next one, Caitlin, is just source of knowledge. So if you've read a book, listened to a podcast, read something mm. of interest, anything just comes to mind first for the listeners today? Oh, I feel like this one is, I really liked Ramping Your Brand, which is a book that um, I think was just a really good guiding guiding lights maybe for emerging brands in this space um by james richardson who i think is it's really interesting just because he's um more of a i forget what you i forget what his discipline was and anthology maybe like i mean more more so more so just like human behavior okay. versus you know somebody who's um grown up in the the cpg industry so to speak sure. but Anyways, he has really good insights on kind of consumers and, and how to tap into consumers and really the right way to scale a brand, which really rang true for me. Um, so that was a really big one. And then, yeah, I think just there's so many great consumer podcasts out there. Um, and so, you know, I really love listening to whether it's the Nosh podcast, I think Project Nosh and, and the BevNet podcast, those are great, um, full of good insights. And then In the Sauce, which is um, the founder of Haven's Kitchens podcast. Mm, I love nice, I yeah. love founder to founder interviews sure. because I do think there's another level of questioning that kind of comes from that. So I really love her podcast as well. Love it. Those are great. And we'll uh, we'll make sure folks can find those. Yeah. And then last one, Caitlin, for folks who've listened to this and want to try Pulp Pantry, what's the best way to try the product, get a hold of you, or if you want to reach out to you, you know, on any platform or any way, um, anything you want to plug in for the audience today? We are just about to launch on Amazon, just in time for for Prime Day. Oh, which, exciting! I mean, you know, I know <laughs> at this the is time of recording. This is Prime. Yeah. It's Prime Day tomorrow. But yeah, you're my you're my like last <laughs> meeting. I've been heads down all day. The next two days are going to be just war room. Oh, my we goodness. call it. I know. Yeah. I can't. Yeah. I I I mean, yeah. I would love to again. You you've got like the whole e commerce. I mean, it's just it's crazy the the way that it's kind of influenced the grocery just grocery in general. But yeah. Um, but yeah, we're we're relaunching on Amazon, so that'll be actually a great thing just to kind of, I think, boost anywhere sales in the United States. So we would love, love if people would purchase there and leave a review also. Exciting stuff. That's awesome. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, hope Wish you guys the best of luck. Hopefully, are you guys running a deal for Prime Day? We are. And actually, it's funny. I just, I signed up with a group um, that is supposedly amazing. I've heard some great referrals um, that actually buys the product wholesale and then Got they okay. within their margin are kind of doing all the advertising the deals the promotions and all that um and of course we can kick back any any dollars to support the marketing as well but i'm super excited about that and just to test it out nice exciting stuff well best of luck yeah. hope it's a smashing success the next two days awesome thank you well caitlin thank you so much i uh, appreciate you coming back on and and sorry for the the hiccup with the technicalities we had here with just that's Riverside you know, that was whole, my bad. But... Who knows? I probably had a million tabs open or something. Oh, it's all good. We figured <laughs> it out. So anyway, well, thank you so much, Caitlin. It was a, it was a pleasure having you on and um, let's stay in touch. Thanks so much for having me. Absolutely. See ya.